This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. Matthew 5 is the Beatitudes, uh, introduces the Sermon on the Mount. And the entire Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 7, and 8, Jesus is teaching his disciples about the kingdom. And in the middle of the whole sermon, he says to them that we ought to pray for his kingdom to come. That's one of our things we regularly pray for. And he said, he's saying to them, this is what life is going to be like. During that time, you say, well, what is the kingdom about? The kingdom that he's speaking of, the kingdom of God is when Jesus returns um, to live and reign on this earth for a thousand years. It begins with what we call the second coming. You can read about that part of it in, in the end of the book of Revelation. He actually comes riding on a white horse. And those of us who know Christ, who've been caught up beforehand together with him, are going to come back with him, riding on horses as well. Now, I'm not crazy about horses. Last time I got on a horse, it about scared me to death because it had a mind of its own. But I'm trusting Jesus this time. He's going to give me a nice horse, all right, and uh, to ride back on. And you say, really? Is that really going to happen? Yeah, it's what the Bible says. Do you believe the Bible? Some of us do, and, uh, and, and uh, we do here at Nags Head Church. So here we have these Beatitudes, this list of attitudes. There are nine of them. We've done three two weeks ago, three last Sunday, three today, and we wrap it up. And they are encouragements to his disciples, to these, these 12 men especially, to make a difference. And they give them warnings that the life of a Christ follower will mean hardships in the coming days. In fact, he speaks specifically today to two groups of people. He speaks to peacemakers and he speaks to the persecuted. So we're going to see that this morning. The scripture was read for us in the video. Now, everybody in the room, in some way or another, everybody makes things, don't we? We all have this creative ability. Um, I, yesterday, I got up yesterday morning, and I told Gail uh, the night before, I said, in the morning, I'm going to get up and make you breakfast. All right? And so I got up early yesterday morning, and, and to make breakfast, I made pancakes, and I, and I scrambled eggs and so forth. And to get up and do that, I have to go in the kitchen. I have to open the, the, the cabinets and pull down mixing bowls and, and get plates out and go in the refrigerator and pull out the ingredients, get the box of Aunt Jemima whole wheat pancake mix. And, uh, and so I, I got all the butter and so forth, got all these things out, and I made breakfast. And everybody makes different things. If we were all to go, let's say we're going to leave here, and I said, let's all go to the, to the beach and build sandcastles. That got your attention, didn't it? Let's all go to the beach and build sandcastles. What would we take with us? We would probably take a shovel, maybe some buckets and some things like that to craft sandcastles. We all make things. Everybody does. And, and if I was to build a, build a dog house, I think those are kind of passe anymore. Build a dog house. You th- dog house? What's a dog? My dog lives in my house and sleeps with me in my bed. You don't want me to get started there. But um, if, if I was to, to, to have a dog and I'll build a dog house, which I've done before, I, I would need lumber and a saw and a hammer and probably some nails to construct that doghouse. So when, when we build things, we, we need things. And Jesus said, what are we supposed to be making 
as disciples of Christ in this time. He says, the thing that we are supposed to be making is peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, he said. We are to be making peace. And we have one, all all we need to make peace. All we need to make peace in this world is one thing, and that is the gospel. It's the one thing that brings peace. Peace. In Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, one of the points that he needed to get across to this church, and he, Paul loved this church. He spent a lot of time with this church, which was located on the Aegean coast there in Asia Minor, um, modern-day Turkey. He spent a lot of time with them. He got that church started, spent a couple of years there with them, training them and teaching them. And he wrote a letter to them. He would later on send a, a guy named Timothy to them. You've read First and Second Timothy, maybe. Timothy was in Ephesus with this church, as, and Paul's writing these instructions to him. And, and one of the things that he wanted to help them with was the realization um, about what peace was, was about how God had made peace through the gospel among two groups that were in there in the church, but yet two groups that historically had been hostile to one another, the Jews and the Gentiles. And there were Jews and there were Gentiles in this Ephesian church. And their tendency, 2,000 years ago, people had biases and people had prejudices, didn't they? And sometimes one group thought they were better than the other. So Paul addresses them because they tended to see themselves as different. You ever said, well, I can't help how I think because that's how I was brought up. I can't help how I think about things because that's my heritage. That's, you know, I'm, I'm from the South, so I, I prefer sweet tea. You know, whatever it might be, but your prejudices come from, and we blame those things on how we were brought up. And we, we, it's like we don't even think that Christ has come to transform us and change us. So we blame everything on our upbringing, and they were doing that. They saw their differences because of that they had because of their past, because of their heritage. And Paul's teaching them in this letter to the Ephesians, hey, there's not a Jewish church and a Gentile church. There's one church. And God has brought you together. It's to be one body. So this is what, it's a lengthy passage, but, but watch, it'll be up on the screen as I read it. And, and he writes to this church and he says, for he, talking about Christ, he is our peace. And here's what he did. He made both groups, Gentile and Jew, one. And he did that by tearing down the dividing wall that separated them, the wall of hostility. Remember back, some of you remember back in the days when President Reagan looked at the, at the camera and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Do you remember that? Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility between the Jewish and the, and the Gentile. And, and in his flesh, talking about when he died, when he was crucified on the cross, in his flesh, he did away with the law of the commandments and regulations. The Bible tells us that Jesus, on his, in his death on the cross, fulfilled the law. He was a fulfillment of the, the Ten Commandments. Jesus fulfilled that. He was a fulfillment. He did away with the law of the commandments and regulations. Why? So that, because the Jews, man, they're all about the law, weren't they? All about the Ten Commandments, all about all those Mosaic laws. And the Gentiles said, we've never even heard of these things before. So Jesus said, let me wipe it clean. Let me bring you all together as one in me, so he, that he might create in himself one man, speaking of Jew and Gentile, take the two and make them one. One man from the two, resulting in what? Peace between them. He did this so that he might reconcile both Jew and Gentile to God in one body through the cross and put the hostility 
between them to death by it. When Christ came, he proclaimed the good news of peace. We call that the gospel. He proclaimed the gospel to you who were far away. He's talking to the Gentiles there. You are far away. He, he proclaimed the gospel to you. And peace to you who were near. Now, the Jewish people love the word peace, don't they? They say shalom. That's their greeting. It means peace. Paul was a Jewish man, and he knew that. And he, Jesus in the cross proclaimed peace to you who were near. Through for him, through, excuse me, for through him, Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit, not two spirits. There's not a Holy Spirit for the Jews and a Holy Spirit for the Greeks. By one spirit to the Father. So then, as a result, you're no longer foreigners and strangers. You're fellow citizens. You're part of the same family, is what he's saying to them. With the saints and members of God's household, God's family, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. So now Jesus is taking the idea of the body, the church, and, and he's making it into a, like it's a building. Now, the church is not a building, is it? The building he's talking about here is us, all right? Christ is the cornerstone. The foundation and prophets are the foundation. Then he says the whole building is being fitted together in him. You ever, you ever do construction work of any kind? And, and I used to do that, and... Um, and, and I'm okay with, with, um, with you know, two-by-fours and two-by-eights and, and so forth. But you asked me to do some trim work, and we're in trouble. Because I just, man, me and, me and uh, angles just don't work real good. Unless they're all 45s. If they're 45s, I'm pretty good with that because I have a, one of those saws, miter saw, you know, and I can put it on 45, and it thinks for me. <laughs> I don't have to draw lines. It's just perfect. But I've tried to, don't let me, don't ever ask me or don't ever expect me or don't ever watch if I ever try and I won't do it. Try to put up crown molding. Anybody ever try to do that? You, you, you not only do you have to think about the angles, you've got to think upside down. I have a hard enough time trying to think right side up. And you know, if you get the angles just right, you, look, you can look at the angles, and go, now you're going to go home and look at the trim around your house and see how they did it. But if, if the angles are just right, man, those boards are perfect together, aren't they? But a lot of times in, in doing trim work, they don't quite get it just perfect. And so I, I kind of think some carpenters think that's okay. It's good enough because the painter's coming in after we're done, and he's got this thing called a tube of caulk. You know what caulk does? Caulk fills in the mistakes. <laughs> He'll put the caulk in there and paint over it, and you'll never know. It says God has fitted the body together, built it together, being fitted together in him, and God's angles are perfect. God's cuts are just right. Fitted together in him and is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. We are the sanctuary of the Lord. You are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Now, all that to say, God says to the Jews and the Gentiles, you're one body, come together. You know Jesus Christ, there's one Savior, one body, one baptism. You come together in him. Now, the only exception, and Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. The only exception to you and me being peacemakers is when it comes to Satan. We're not to make peace with the devil. 
because he's the enemy of Christ. He can't be saved. He can't be reconciled. He can't be brought back to God. And he doesn't have the power to overcome the gospel. So if you know Jesus Christ today as your personal savior, that means you've been set free from sin's domain in your life. You're an example. You are a living example of the power of the gospel to bring you into a relationship with God and bring peace between you and God. That's what he's done. But Satan doesn't care. He doesn't give up. He fights us. You ever do battle with the devil, by the way? You ever do battle with the devil? Now, a lot of times we blame things on the devil that aren't his fault, I think. But he, he does battle with us. In fact, if, if he doesn't mess with you, if you're a Christian, I, I believe Jesus Christ is my Savior, and the devil never messes with you, that would be reason for you to have concern. That's not a good sign. But I hope, Church, Nag said, Church, he sees you, Satan sees you as a, as a threat to his domain. I, think, I hope he sees you as a threat to his purposes because you are sold out to Christ. Well, in the same letter in the Ephesians that I read from just a moment ago, at the, toward the end of the letter, Paul talks about doing battle. Being, being ready for Satan's attacks. And he describes what we know there in Ephesians as the armor of God. Have you ever heard of that? And he tells these Christians to put on the armor of God. Now, it's not literal armor like, like the, the helmet and the shield and so forth. But he says, here's the armor that God has, has prepared for you to wear as you do battle with Satan. As he fires those fiery darts, those arrows your way. Describe the army or armor of God that we wear. And that armor included the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. And the one offensive tool in that entire armor is the sword, the sword of the Spirit, he said, which is the Word of God. And then he said to have on your feet shoes of the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace. And the gospel in that armor are shoes. In the armor means that that's what holds us up. That's what gives us traction. When the devil's pushing hard, we got our, we got our shoes on and we're not going to slide back. So put on the, on, the, on the gospel of peace. Reconciliation, making peace, bringing peace about people, between people in conflict is our one of our purposes as a church, it's our, we call it evangelism often, but it's our ministry as the people of God. And we are to be peacemakers. We're to be reconcilers because God is a peacemaker. Just like we talk about, we are to love people. Why? Because God so loved the world. We are to be givers. Why? Because he gave his only begotten son. We are to be like God and God is a peacemaker. The Bible says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20. Now everything is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, church, the ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against him, against them, against the world. And he has committed the message of reconciliation. What is the message of reconciliation? It's the gospel of Christ. It's the gospel of peace that brings us to God. He's committed that message to us. Therefore, because he's given us the gospel and we are to use it to reconcile men and women back to God, Paul says we are then ambassadors for Christ. 
certain that God is appealing through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That's what we do when we share the gospel. That's why we're saying to you, hey, be praying right now for those that you're going to bring to church with you on Easter Sunday, the unchurched, the, those that don't know Christ. Be praying for them that they'll come and they'll hear the gospel and the appeal to them to be reconciled to God. We may not use those words, but to come to Christ, to have eternal life, to have your sins forgiven. Attitude number seven. We're going to do seven, eight, nine today. Attitude number seven, that is, is being a peacemaker is active, not passive. I want to be a peacemaker because Jesus said they're blessed. What is a peacemaker? Well, first of all, a peacemaker is more than enjoying peace. Don't you enjoy peace? Isn't it great? If, and we're blessed because we really, those of us who are Americans, we've never lived in a war-torn country. You know, places where there's always conflict, the Middle East and, and different places. We've never lived in those kind of places. So peace is nice, and maybe we don't understand how nice it is. But here, please hear me. Peace doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen. What do you mean by that? The lost don't just get saved. To be a reconciler, to be a peacemaker, to get beyond simply enjoying peace means you and I have to get up and get off the sideline and take a risk. Uh, I know a lot of police officers. And police officers, the ones that I've been around and I ride around with them sometimes and chat with them, and, and uh, I love to watch live PD on television. It's one of my favorite shows. And one of the things I realize about police officers is they try real hard to be peacemakers. They really do. Try to diffuse situations and get people to calm down. But you ask any kind of, any police officer, uh, they'll tell you, what is the most dangerous call that you go on? And you know what they say? The most dangerous call that they, goes, they go on are domestic situations where there is a man and a woman in the home, maybe husband and wife, but there's a fight going on. There's maybe things being thrown around. There, maybe somebody's pulled out a weapon. Somebody's hitting somebody. Though the, those are the ones when they go to, they call for backup. Because they know very well, if I go in that, in that house and I see that this fellow perhaps is the perpetrator, he's the one that I need to separate and pull out, if I put handcuffs on him, she's liable to come after me with something. I mean, the whole argument turns from being against each other to being against the cop. So they try real hard to be peacemakers, but they know that isn't always possible, but they take a risk in doing that, enjoying peace. Don't you enjoy peace? You grandparents will understand what I'm about to say. One of the, you know, and I love having my grandkids over at my house, and you grandparents do too. But you know, the best thing about having your kids over at, to your house and, and so forth when your grandparents, what's the best thing about having them over? Knowing they're going to go home. They're not staying here. They're leaving, they're going back, and, 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 uh, and, and our grandkids, and we love our grandkids, and they have a lot of fun, but they're, they're still young, and, and uh, sometimes it gets kind of wild and wooly in the house, you know, with them, and, and, you know, especially if it's a brother and a sister or a couple brothers, they begin to argue and fight, or they're running around through the house, and, and there's stuff all over the place, you know, and, uh, and so finally, uh, it's time for them to go, and, and they, they walk out the door, and after just seconds after well they walk out the door and they go and get into their cars with their parents to leave grandmommy will say listen 
Listen. What are we listening to? The sound of peace. <laughs> you know, it gets quiet again. But this being a peacemaker is more than simply enjoying the peace. It doesn't just happen. Then peacemakers, it, it's taking the initiative to bring people together and to Christ. And we take the initiative again because didn't God do that? We love him because he first loved us. He's the one that took the initiative to bring us back. We didn't say, here, here, we got the suggestion, God, about how we can get back with you. How we, that's not how it worked. God initiated that. Somebody, Christian, somebody has to bring the gospel to those who need to hear it. Somebody's got to do that. Now, we're for our guests today, just let you in on a little secret. We are a Baptist church here. And oftentimes, and, and, and I hope this is not true with, with, uh, with our, our church, um, and we certainly teach differently, but oftentimes in Baptist churches, if I was to make that point, somebody's got to take the gospel to them. The people in the congregation would look at me and nod and say, that's why we hired you. But it's not. Not my job. It's all of our job to do that. We're all called to bring the gospel. We're all called to be ambassadors for Christ, not just the pros. Then a third thing about being a peacemaker is that it's encur it, is, it is encouraging the contentious when you're a peacemaker. Encouraging the contentious to work things out by letting Christ in. Work it out, and you work it out by bringing Christ into the thing. Our counseling team that we have here at our church knows that the only real resolution to family conflicts is to see those in conflict turn their hearts to the Lord and surrender their rights over to him because he is our peace. You need peace in the home? Start with Jesus. Bring him in. Peacemakers will be honored in the kingdom, Jesus said, for imitating their father. He said, for they, the peacemakers are blessed. Why? For they will be in the kingdom, will be called sons of God. Now, what does that mean, they'll be called sons of God? Well, I, I can tell you what it doesn't mean first. It doesn't mean that by being a peacemaker, you become a child of God. I remember years ago, a friend of mine who's a, who is a, was, he's retired now, a police officer here locally, called me up, somebody had died who had been a police officer, and he was going to read a scripture in the, in the funeral, and he said, where is that scripture, uh, Rick, where it talks about peace officers? And I said, well, it doesn't talk about peace officers, it talks about peacemakers. And I told him that where this was, and it was like the, the, the what he was implying was he's going to read this at the funeral because the, the assumption or the implication that they were going to make was, well, if you're a cop, you go to heaven. All cops go to heaven. Well, let me tell you what, they don't. Right? You don't go to heaven because you're a cop. That's not what gives anybody. You, and let me say, and, and, and I know a lot of firefighters, and we all love fire. We don't all love cops, but we all love firefighters. Well, they're not going to heaven just because they're firefighters. Nobody goes to heaven by being a peacemaker. That's not what he's saying here. We know that salvation, is, you become a child of God by faith alone in Christ alone. So being a peacemaker doesn't mean you become a child of God. Salvation is not by works. John wrote, John chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, he gave them, those who received him, the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name. 
So you and I, police officers, firefighters, what, anybody, you and I become children of God when we believe in Christ, when we receive him as Savior. So what does that mean? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. We have expressions in our culture for children who look like or act just like their parents, don't we? You know, you've seen them all. You've seen kids that look just like mom or dad, or they act just like mom. And, you know, your mothers have often said to your children when they're misbehaving, you're just like your father. Have you not? The mom's afraid to say anything, dad. Uh, but, but we say that you're just like your parents. You'll look just like your mom. You'll look just like your dad. We say things like, my mini-me. We say things like, you're the spitting image of so-and-so. Or we might say, well, look at somebody saying, see them both there, mom and dad, and say, well, the nut sure didn't far fall from the tree, did it? Jesus said they'll be called sons of God. And here's what that means. That means their reputation while they lived on this earth for being ministers of reconciliation, for bringing people together, for bringing people to God, their reputation will give them honor in the kingdom as being just like our Heavenly Father. When they get in the kingdom of God, they're going to be recognized as you're just like, you were just like your Heavenly Father when you lived on earth. You brought people to him. You reconciled people. God, against whom we rebelled in sin, took the initiative. Here's how we're like him. He took the initiative to reconcile us to himself. How did he take the initiative? He sent his son, his one and only son, to die for our, for our sins, to uh, be our substitute, to be our savior. And those of us who bring others to a relationship with him through Christ will be given greater honor in the kingdom. There are going to be people in the kingdom that Jesus is going to point out and say, he was just like my father. He brought people to me. He brought people together. Attitude eight, living right in the face of opposition. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for doing what's right. You ever heard this expression? If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? You ever hear anybody ask you that? You're arrested for being a Christian. Is there enough evidence to convict you? We, we saw with Attitude 4 last Sunday that righteousness is a couple of things. Righteousness is both being right in God's eyes and doing what is right in God's eyes. It's who we are. It's what we do. And because you and I live in a world that more and more opposes what is right in God's eyes, have you noticed that, this world? It can be difficult for us to do what is right in God's eyes without facing opposition, without facing persecution from those opposed to righteousness. It could be, where, where can we face persecution for doing what's right? Could be at work. Could be at work. We insist on doing the right thing. I remember I was in a construction job right down the road here, building a motel. And, and, and this other fellow and I were, were supposed to be framing up for sliding glass windows. And this and it's a concrete building, block walls and concrete floor and ceiling. And so we're, we're putting these two-by-fours up to frame out for the sliding glass doors. And one thing I understood was you probably, in doing that, a level is a good tool to have. 
you know, to make sure it's straight up and down. Well, this guy was just eyeballing it, you know. He's just putting it up there, and it looks straight, and we were shooting it in with these, these nail guns. And, uh, and I looked at him and said, dude, you can't do that. we got to use a level. you got to uh, use a level. And he got, all of a sudden, he got really mad. I mean, crazy mad, insane mad at me. So mad that he came up to me, and he pulled a knife on me. And he held that knife up right up to my gut, which was smaller back in those days. He held a knife right up to my gut. And, and pardon me, but he said, I, I, I need to tell this story. He said to me, he said, you go to hell. And I said, I can't. I did. I told him that. I can't. I'm saved. Jesus, Jesus said, forgive me. I did. And uh, it turned out good. He didn't cut me or anything. A year or two later, I found out he stabbed his brother to death, his twin brother. Yeah, so, you know, he got mad at what I said to him. And, uh, and, and sometimes at work, it's difficult to stand for righteousness. Isn't it? And all I was saying was, let's do the job right. <laughs> he wanted to kill me. I can laugh about it now. Um, <laughs> it can be at work. Um, it could be among old friends. If you become a Christian maybe a little bit later in life, you've got a whole lot of friends that maybe you're not Christians, and you become a Christian and your life changes, your desires change, the things that you want to do, the things that you don't want to do change, and sometimes your old friends, you're going to have to choose between hanging out with them and doing what they want to do. And they may not like what you choose, and they might not like who you've becoming, who you've become. Sometimes they can dump you. They don't want to be your friend anymore. They can refuse to go along with you anymore because you've changed what your, what your priorities are, are. Saying yes to God and no to sinful behavior, by the way, brings that risk of losing friends, in case you didn't know, of being an outcast from them socially. Maybe you're the only Christian in your family. You could be the only one in your family that doesn't know Christ. Um, I heard, heard, heard a story about after the last service, somebody came up and told me about somebody, and that's the situation. She's, she's a Christian, but she married a guy who's not, and it's, it's really rough at home right now because of that. Being a Christian means you're not made to be felt, they don't make you feel welcome anymore. On the face of it, losing your job, losing your friends, feeling unloved by family, that's painful, especially when you know they're kicking me out. They don't want anything to do with me because I'm doing what's right. It's not easy. And people hate a, right, a righteous life lived out in front of them because it exposes their own ungodliness. It brings out hostility. Yet Jesus, in saying this, he said later to his disciples, hey, guys, you can expect that kind of treatment. You can expect worse. Paul would write to the Roman Christians. You think they understood persecution in Rome in the first century? They had an emperor, a guy by the name of Nero. He wrote to them in verse 14 of chapter 12, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Our natural tendency when persecution, opposition comes, our natural tendency might be to strike back against it. If the Bible says no, you bless them. You do something good for them. Jesus has a reward for those who suffer persecution for doing right. He says those who suffer persecution for doing right, 
the kingdom of heaven is theirs, he said. Being persecuted now for living a life of integrity that might cause you loss right now. It might cause you loss at work, at home, with your friends. It might cause you loss, but Jesus, here's, here's the thing, I love this. I really believe this is true. Jesus is watching and he's taking notes. He sees what's going on in your life. He's aware of what's happening in your life. And he promises us, hey, if you go through that, you endure that, I I promise you, in my kingdom, you will gain a significant position. The kingdom of heaven is yours. Attitude nine. Similar but different, willingness to suffer for Christ's sake. Eight was you're willing to suffer persecution for righteousness. Now it's, he said, for my sake, blessed are you when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. And here's where it gets really tough. Um, I don't know about you. I saw lots of stories this past week about persecution in other parts of the world. I saw lots of stories about Christians being slaughtered in places like Nigeria and Kenya just in the last few days. They went to a church in Kenya and killed dozens of people. Being slaughtered by by Muslim terrorists, people who have another religion, and please understand, it's all about religion. Somebody tried to tell me, well, it's the herders against the farmers, baloney. The herders may be one religion and the farmers may be another, but this is about religion. And they're being slaughtered for their religion, and in some countries, especially in the Middle East, standing for Christ can bring great suffering. A few years ago here at Nags Head Church, right before Thanksgiving, I got a phone call from a local lady who said, hey, we've got this young man who's come to visit us that we've become friends with. He's from Turkey. He's a student in a university in another state, and he's come to spend the Thanksgiving holidays with us, but he's Turkish. And while he was in Turkey... He became a Christian. That was a great story about it. I said, I talked to him. And he came by to see me. I said, how did you become a Christian? And you talk about taking the initiative. You talk about being a peacemaker. He said, I was hired to be a translator for the American military, for a unit there in Turkey, fighting the Taliban. He said, they hired me to be their translator. And he said, I just had this curiosity about Christianity. And he said, one of the soldiers gave me a Bible. He said, here, here's a Bible. It's yours. He said, I began to read that book. And he read the Bible. And he got to the Gospels. And he read about Christ. And he realized who Jesus is and what Jesus had done for him. He said, and by reading the Bible, I became a Christian. I put my faith in Christ. And I said, no more Islam. But he said, I could not come out publicly with that because had I done so, they would have killed me right away. My my family would have rejected me. The Taliban would have found out and they would have killed me. So here he is in the United States going to college and he's actually teaching in in a college. And he came and he said, he got with us and he said, I want to be baptized. I want to be baptized. would 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 you guys baptize me? what do you think I said? I said, man, this is neat. Absolutely. And so we got a few people together, and on Thanksgiving Day, um, Thanksgiving afternoon, we took him down here to the Sound. Um, One of our guys in the church got him a wetsuit (laughs) because it was kind of chilly. 
And uh, one of our guys who was going out to be a missionary to that part of the world baptized him in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I've never experienced that kind of persecution, have you? I'm free to admit that I'm a Christian in this country and not experience anything or not have any threat like that. But we're seeing persecution for Christ's sake here in the United States, although we don't like to admit it. And that's because we, we don't see the bombings and we don't see the beheadings and the mass rapes and things that are happening in Africa and the Middle East. We don't see those things happening to Christians here. But what we do see, we do see the things that Jesus described there in verse 11. You see, when you and I as Christians, when we bring Jesus into our lives and we begin as Christians to live unashamed of him, he said, persecution because of me. We begin to live unashamed because of him. We can expect insults. That's what Jesus said. We can expect people to lie about us. We can expect, as Jesus said, every kind of evil because of him. Persecution. The word for persecute can mean anything from harassment, bullying, if you will, to hate, to killing. It can mean any of those things. Jesus told his disciples during the Last Supper, John chapter 15, verse 20, he said, remember the word that I said to you. Don't forget this. He's about the next day is when he's going to be crucified. He says, don't forget that I told you a servant's not greater than his master. And if they persecuted me, did they persecute Jesus? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Why? Because of him. Because of him. They needed to be prepared for what would come, and, and it did come to them. Of the 12, you know, Judas committed suicide, but of the other 11, 10 of them died martyrs' deaths. Other than John, they all died as a result of their faith in Christ. The Apostle Paul, who personally experienced persecution from both religious zealots and politicians, the politics, he eventually was executed while he was in prison. And he told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, 3, shortly before he was killed, he said, indeed, Timothy, get this, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Is that your desire today? I think most of us who are Christians would say, yeah, that's what I desire, to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. And get this, if you desire that, you're going to be persecuted. Expect it. Jesus then says, however, in these Beatitudes, when he says, blessed are the persecuted, those who suffer persecution in my name, he says, be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. You're going to suffer for me, guys. Be happy about it, is what he just said. And most of those men, as I said, were killed for their faith, but he said, be glad and rejoice because this is not the end. As they were crucified, as they were boiled in oil, as they were beheaded, however they were killed, these disciples, he wanted them to know it doesn't stop there. Be glad and rejoice. It's because your reward's going to be great in heaven. Paul, the Apostle Paul, in that same passage when he's talking to Timothy about his own impending execution, Paul, we believe, was beheaded. He said, he says, it's okay because I fought a good fight. I've run the course. And so there is laid up for me, there is ready waiting for me in the kingdom, a crown of righteousness. He said, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. It's not all bad. And Jesus added the per persecution because of him was nothing new because he said, hey, they're going to persecute you. But guess what? That's what they did to the prophets. They persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
taking a stand for Christ in this life. Even here in North Carolina, even here in the United States, where we still have so many freedoms, bears a cost, doesn't it? And I believe, I'm no prophet, but I believe that unless there is a revival that comes to this country amongst Christian people and shakes this country with the gospel of Christ, unless that happens and America comes back to God, I believe that cost for you and me and especially for our young people is going to grow. So what do we do? Let me finish this up real quickly. Three things. What do we do? First of all, with these attitudes, all right, all of them, we check our attitudes regularly. Check them regularly. How do I do that? Go back and read through them. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Go back and read through them. And am, am I brokenhearted over the things that break God's heart? Do I realize that I'm spiritually bankrupt without Christ? And you go right through all of those attitudes that we covered these last couple of weeks. And ask yourself this question. So am I living now, right now, today, March 24, 2019, am I living now with the coming kingdom in mind? Or is that the farthest thing from my mind? Am I solely focused on my temporary life today? Check your attitudes regularly. Secondly, pray daily. And here's, here's my suggestion, one of the things that we should pray. Lord, today, change in me what doesn't please you. Change in me what doesn't please you, and then listen for God's response in your heart. He'll speak with a still, small voice. He'll speak through his word and say, okay, here's something, Rick. You want change? Here's something I'm not happy with in your life right now. I need you to give that up. I need you to throw that away. I need you to walk away from that because that's not pleasing to me. You've, if you're going to respond to Christ, sometimes it's going to be costly. Change in me what doesn't please you. Pray daily. Number three. Make him and his kingdom your passion above all else. At the end of chapter 6 in that same Sermon on the Mount, that's where he said, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God. Make him and his kingdom your passion above all else. In other words, ask this question. Jot this question down with that. Ask this question. What's more important to me, his glory or my gain? What matters most to me, his glory or my game. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God, love others, reach the world.